Uh, it's an interesting psalm, Psalm 137. I, it occurred to me recently that this might be the first, the first line of this might be the first line of scripture that I ever memorized in my entire life. Uh, and, and the reason is, is that before I was a Christian, long before I was a Christian, in the early 90s, uh, there was this song that I loved called The Rivers of Babylon. It, it was actually a cover song done by a, a band named Sublime. I don't know if any of you remember them at all or you're older. Uh, it was on the, the title or on a, an album that was, had the classy title of 40 Ounces of Freedom. So you can imagine what the rest of this album was like. Uh, at the time, I had absolutely no, no idea that the source of this song was actually from uh, the scriptures. Uh, so, of course, recently, when I decided that this would be one of our summer psalms this, this year, it, um, I, I learned that uh, the lyrics of that song don't exactly match Psalm 137. They're awfully close, but they're not exactly the same because the, the original author who was writing before Sublime in 1970 was applying these words to Rastafarian oppression under the Jamaican government. Uh, you can probably imagine that the original author of the psalm had no idea it would ever be put to that purpose someday. Uh, but that's, that's what it is. And so um, the other interesting thing about this psalm is that over the years, it has been used often uh, in, in all sorts of places where it's been repurposed for, for people that feel the sense of oppression in their own lives. Uh, most notably, any of you history buffs might know this, but Psalm 137 was the text of the abolitionist Frederick Douglass's uh, famous sermon in 1852 called, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? Um, you can imagine how that went. So before we read, though, I, I do want to remind you of something real simple, that, that Psalm 137 being in our Bibles is not a historical mistake. In, in the providence of God, it is absolutely here on purpose, and, and it is here for us to learn from it, right? And, and so our goal is, to, to, is not to pass judgment on it, to reject it in any way, but, but to understand that if God intends this in the scriptures for a purpose, we want to know what it is and to learn from it. And, and, and I'll admit, absolutely, if you haven't already picked up on it, I, I, I've kind of been dreading this psalm all, all year to begin with. I, when I picked it, it was on the basis of uh, we're doing the psalms every summer, and so at some point I don't want to end up with, with a whole summer of all the weirdest psalms together. And so it's like, let's just throw it in there, and, and, and we'll deal with it now. And, and I'll tell you that after spending a lot of time learning the background of the psalm and understanding a little more, it, it's actually become one of my favorite psalms. And don't judge me on that when you first hear this this morning, okay? Uh, but let's read. We're going to begin uh, verse 1, and we'll read through the entirety of Psalm 137. <clears throat> By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept, and we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. 
The grass withers, the flower fades. <clears throat> Let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, this part of the scriptures also is your word, inspired, inerrant, infallible, profitable for us. Well, we likely can relate to the lament of the author's heart, for on us the sense of vengeance startles us. Lord, would you silence our prideful judgment, which may wish to reject this outright. Instead, teach us to submit ourselves to your word and to learn from it and to be edified by it. <clears throat> and if you will do so, to even be comforted by this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, our, our men's group was meeting and, and Rodney was teaching us. And one of the things Rodney had to say was, um, it, it'd be a good idea if you take a psalms and you pray the psalms and you use it as your basis uh, of your psalms. And, and, and just before that, earlier that morning, I'd actually been reading Psalm 137. And so this is the psalm that came to mind as I'm looking at Rodney telling me, uh, you know, pray the psalms. And, and in that moment, I'm, I'm asking myself, can I really pray that? Can I do that? Could I, could I really pray the blessing upon the one who violently kills the children of a nation? Can, can I in any sense, or can we in any sense, really pray this song? And instead of giving you an answer outright here to begin with, I, I want to take us through this text, to unpack this text, so that you can answer that question yourself, God willing, by the end of this. You see, Psalm 137, there's a lot to understand before it makes any sense to us. First of all, it's in a category of psalm that's called an imprecatory psalm. Any of you ever heard that phrase before? A couple head shaking. I, I, I honestly have used it or heard it most often, rather, when, when it, more of in a joke kind of setting, where someone says, uh, you should pray for them because they've been so mean. You know, you pray for your enemy who's been so mean to you, and the other person will say, yeah, pray an imprecatory psalm, and then all the theological people just kind of giggle. Um, here's why, and so you can get the joke in the future. Imprecatory means to invoke uh, the judgment, often the violent judgment of God upon a group of people for some evil they've done. And so in some sense, it's calling down God's judgment upon them, and that's the joke that you would pray that for your enemy. Um, so, so here's what these nine verses are about. Let's just work our way through them. In the city of Jerusalem, uh, there is a hill, and the hill is named Zion. It's a bit of a mystery why it's named Zion. But the temple of the Lord is built on that hill. And, and this is the understanding that this is the presence of God upon the earth. This is where the people would go to worship him and to meet with him. And, and so one time, over time, though, the, the, the people of Israel began to respond or refer to all of Israel, not just this one, one hill in there, but all of Jerusalem, rather, not Israel, by the, by the name of Zion as well. Babylon, another nation, an enemy nation, is far away from Jerusalem. But in, in the year of 587 B.C., so a long time ago, the Babylons come and they, inv they invade Jerusalem, destroying the city of Jerusalem and the temple, and they carry off captives off to Babylon to be used as slaves later. And we're going to explore that invasion or explore, explore that invasion a little bit in greater detail a bit later. But, but here in verse 1, if you've got it before you, we can see that, that God's people are in this foreign land and they are absolutely just overwhelmed with grief. And they're sitting down alongside a river, most likely the Euphrates or the Tigris rivers, and, and they just weep, just emotionally undone at this point. 
Maybe this is the first moment that things have stopped long enough that just kind of allow that wake of, uh, to catch up with them, the wake of everything they've endured, and they just sob. And as they do so, they are remembering in their minds their homeland. They are, they're thinking about the destruction of the temple where they went to go worship the Lord. They're thinking about uh, the loved ones who have been killed and brutally murdered. And then in verse 2, they hang up their instruments upon the trees. And the, these trees, right, which we fittingly often refer to not just as willows, but weeping willows. You see, the instruments of their, of their worship are, are what they're hanging up here. And, and so the point is, is that we will not sing. We will not sing in this moment. In verse 3, we see this refusal to sing as a result of the Babylonians who have sarcastically and mockingly uh, come upon them and, and told them, you know, you must sing these songs of praise right now. And you can almost hear these mockers, can't you? Come on now, sing, sing one of your happy songs. Go ahead, sing, sing how great your Lord is now. Let's hear it. And it just adds to the sorrow they've been feeling. So it might not be surprising that they refuse to sing, especially since in, in this moment there is just no joy. They're absolutely drained by grief. And they vow at this moment that they are never, ever, ever going to forget their homeland, to forget Jerusalem. In fact, they, they say they'd rather lose their hands and their mouths, the very parts of their bodies that they need for that worship music. They would rather lose those than they would forget the city of God and all that that represents in their life. So we'll look at those last seven verses. But uh, before we get there, um, to, to be fair, it's, it's more of a pop culture joke at this point in history. But in the, the national tradition of Texas, my home nation, uh, there's this phrase that originally called for the revenge against Mexico for a great evil that Mexico did against our people at a particular siege. Any of you know what that phrase is? You can just shout it out. Nobody? Thank you. Thank you. Remember the Alamo. Um, see, so the Alamo was this great disaster uh, where General Santa Ana of the Mexican army just ruthlessly comes and, and surrounds the Alamo mission and, and, and fort, and, and, and just about everyone in there is killed. And, and the Texans are, are filled with so much grief, and, and they are, when they later decide they're going to attack back against Santa Ana, their cry was to remember the Alamo, to remember what had been done to them, and, and to bring it back. It's this cry of vengeance in a lot of ways. That's the idea of this third, third stanza beginning in verse 7 here. See, the focus ceases from the Israelites' own commitment that, you know, Lord, we're going to remember you forever. And now they're asking God to remember the evil that was rendered against them, asking really that God would render justice against those who did evil to them. Now, it might be surprising, because if you're looking at the passage there, you see that it's talking about Edom there. And on some level, you're like, where did Edom come from? They're not even in any of the story we've read so far. You know, it's Babylon who destroyed their city and marched them away to be captives. Now, see, the details of Edom's involvement is, is really re relatively unknown, but it's, it's likely that they assisted the Babylonians, particularly since they were the neighbor to the south of Israel. Um, it, it, while Babylon was very far away. The, the Edomites were certainly present as this all goes down because they have a, a quote, in fact, of what Jerusalem or what the Edomites were chanting as Jerusalem was being destroyed. Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. 
And then in verse 8, it, it looks, you know, verse 8 looks for the Babylonians to also be destroyed. And it's calling on this because of the evil they have committed, which, which brings us then to verse 9, right? That vinegar verse, so full of anger and, and bitter vengeance. Listen to this again. It says, Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This is the line of which Eugene Peterson, channeling just the general Christian, asked this question, Who let this into our prayer book? You might be wondering the same thing, right? Well, why is this why is this angry prayer included in the Holy Scriptures? Walter Bregman gives a helpful response here. He says this. He says, The Psalm explores the four, full gamut of human experience, from rage to hope. Indeed, it would be very strange if such a robust spirituality lacked such a dimension of vengeance. For we would conclude that just at the crucial point, robustness had turned to cowardice and propriety. In, in other words, this is the raw emotional human response to suffering evil, particularly evil of this degree. And so it, it might be difficult, I think, for us to relate just to such an ancient story of Israel, right? It, we don't feel the emotions in any way. But, but what about some stories in history that are a little more recent? What about the ruthless evil done to Jewish children and, and women by the Nazis at the time of World War II? Or, or for those of you, how many of you are old enough to actually remember the events of 9-11? A number of you. Um, do you remember the anger we felt as we watched on, on TV screens or computer screens or our homeland being attacked and our fellow Americans agonizingly being murdered. I mean, you, you really can't drive around very long without seeing one of those bumper stickers, never forget 9-11 or remember 9-11. I mean, you, you, you know it's been our own experience as a nation, you know, and songs of lament were written in the weeks that followed. Uh, I mean, surely you remember Alan Jackson's song, Where Were You When the World Stopped Turning? later, some of those songs of bitter vengeance, I know I'm quoting country songs here, right? But Toby Keith's Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue, if you, if you haven't heard that, right? It's, it's fittingly has a subtitle you might not know about it called just The Angry American. It's these emotions that, that pour out because uh, of this great evil done against our, our people. See, if you have memories from that day, even, even this morning, it might fill you with that strange mixture of, of sorrow and grief just to think about it. And so you've you got to understand the exhausting grief that the Israelites feel in this moment as they remember what has happened on, on that day. You see, somehow the walls of Jerusalem were breached, they were broken into, and then the Babylonian invaders rushed in and began to slaughter people left and right. They were killing the old, they were murdering women, they were decimating the sick and the children of Israel. I looked up to see how in the world it was done in these situations. They, they would grab the limb of a child and, and smash the child against the closest stone or hard surface they could find. And I, I found myself just asking, why? Why in the world would you kill the children? And the answers that were given from, from old, old documents that explain the reasoning behind it was that um, 
Well, my first thought was, why don't they just capture them and use them like slaves, like everyone else? Um, but that runs the risk of the children growing up and seeking revenge. So they were simply killed. It was also believed that, that parents would submit once it was too late to save their children. That, that that's the moment that a, a parent stops fighting. And, and so that was part of their motivation. You see, the, the violence against Jerusalem was brutal. And, and now the, the survivors, having been marched off to Babylon, they cannot rid themselves of these agonizing memories. This, this is all that's behind this psalm as we read it. I mean, if you can see past the violence, though, at the very heart, verse 9 here, is an emotional hope for justice. That's really what this psalm's about. Now, now we're going to go a little deeper in this as we move on to really try to make sense out of all this even further. You, you may wonder, how does this fit into the rest of the scriptures, right? Immediately, you're, you're thinking of, maybe that's not how we're supposed to react. Where, where's the love here, right? And it's, it's a good question because Christians often read a passage like Psalm 137, and, and we want to say, you know, especially to like uh, unbelieving friends or, or people that are really new to the faith, we want to say, that's, that's how God used to be, right? In the Old Testament, all vengeful and mean and stuff, that's how he was, but not now, right? There's this false, you know, defense of God. We want to say, God's different now. He's all grace and love and sunshine and lollipops, you know. Listen, let me set you free from something here. God has not hired you to be his public relations director. Okay? It's, it's not our job to make God's word match the ideas of how we think God should be or how others really wish God to be. We, we have a really simple job here. We, we align our understanding of who God is simply according to his word and the way that he's revealed himself to us in that word. That's all. Okay, you don't have to be the public relation director for the Lord. And in all the scriptures, we, we learn that God relates to his people through covenants. And, and there are always consequences when, when, we, when we break covenant. These might be some strange ideas to you, but uh, you, you can even go and read some of the covenant blessings and curses <clears throat> as they're laid out in Deuteronomy 26 through 30. Uh, right? You can go do it on your own time at some point. But, but the basic idea is there's blessings for obedience and there's curses for disobedience. And we, we, we tend not to talk about covenant curses much, only the, the covenant blessings for obvious reasons. It's, it's much more enjoyable. But, but, but if we're to believe the blessings are real, and they are, we also must believe that the curses are real. In, in other words, that the wrath of God is just as real as the love of God. And so Israel at this time is, is suffering in this Babylonian exile. And, and the reason is, is because they broke the covenant be, because of sin. And that might sound weird. Scripture tells us this much, much exactly. I'm not, you know, this is not one of those weird Christian TV networks where someone just assumes the cause and effect. Uh, God reveals this to be the case. You see, when, 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 king, or when Manasseh was king of Israel, he built altars to false gods, and he placed idols in the temple, and he did all sorts of evil, and, and the people followed him. And there's this prophecy in Lamentations 4, and it references the punishment of Israel being complete and the punishment of Edom that was still to come. Here's what it says, Lamentations 4.22. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. 
He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. And, and so God has said that he's going to bring judgment to Edom, which is why if you look closely at verses 8 and 9 of our psalm today, you see they aren't actually asking God to do this as if it's their idea. They're, they're simply assuming this will be done. See, and that's because they know the prophecies. They've heard the prophecies. There's other ones about the, the judgment that the Babylonians will face. Jeremiah 51:24 says, I will repay Babylon for all the evil that they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. And in fact, in the book of Isaiah, the entire 13th chapter of Isaiah is, is dedicated, is, is all about this prophecy of what's going to happen to Babylon because of what they've done. And, and it's, it is brutal. Listen to this uh, uh, a little bit. Isaiah 13, 6, it, it's terrifying. It says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty will come, therefore all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt they will be dismayed. Pangs of agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. And then later in that chapter, still Isaiah 13 and verse 16, listen and tell me if this doesn't sound incredibly familiar to you. It says this, the Lord says, their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. That's hard to hear, isn't it? You don't have to like it. I don't like it when I hear it. You don't have to like it, but sometimes the justice and the wrath of God is, is more disturbing and, and violent than we allow ourselves to believe. It just is. We, we, we live way down the timeline from all this, and so we have an interesting perspective and because we know that these prophecies actually came true. Right? These aren't just kid stories. This is history. This is what happened to Babylon. All of it. And, and it wasn't by the hands of the Israelites, in case you're wondering. It's not that they rise up and defeat those in revenge. It's, it's actually a, it's a bit like that scene in, in Star Wars Episode One where, where Obi-Wan uh, is underwater in a ship with the, everyone's beloved Jar Jar Binks. He is people's favorite character, right? And uh, Jar Jar is panicking because their ship has been bit onto by this, this big fish, this huge fish that's got him in their grip. And, and then he's panicking, no one else. And then moments later, a fish ten times as big bites that fish and carries it off, setting them free. And, and, and then Kigon Jin, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, probably not, uh, just matter-of-factly says back to him, there, there's always a bigger fish. That's what actually happens. That's the way Lord, the God actually works. It's in history. The, the Israelites were decimated by the big old Babylonians, but 71 years later, in the sovereignty of God, a bigger fish called the Persian Empire decimates the Babylonians, fulfilling all the prophecies that are made. And, and that's the means that Israel is, is set free, right? And as that justice is poured out on Babylon, Israel once again has a future and, and a hope, as Jeremiah 29 refers to it. So you see these, these covenant curses continue into the, the New Testament, under the New Covenant. In Galatians 1.8, we can, we can hear the language of curses, right? In case we're thinking, oh, God's so different. Paul, Paul writes here, though, but even if a, a, an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. It's 
calling a, a curse upon them, right? This isn't hyperbole. This isn't some great exaggeration. It's straightforward that those who are, are, are working against the gospel will be accursed. The weight of God's final judgment will be on them. And then again, in 1 Corinthians 16.22, if, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And just like we've seen in the Old Testament, justice and vengeance belong to the Lord. I think that's one of the things that comes up when you first read Psalm 137. And even if you can't remember the reference, or Romans 12.19 might come to mind. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay it, says the Lord. Well, that is what Israel is doing in Psalm 137, and leaving it to the Lord. This is where it begins to connect with us, though. We, we also must trust the Lord to accomplish ultimate justice. All of you know when something horrible has been done to you or someone you, you care about or your nation or whatever it is, there is this innate desire that we want to get some sort of revenge and we want to do it ourselves. And, and a big reason that we do that is because we, we fear that if, if we don't do it, justice won't be served. Somehow they're going to get away with it. And so there's that lack of belief in our own hearts that God won't render justice. Listen, Christian, you, 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 you can trust the Lord to render pure and perfect justice. You can be absolutely assured of that. First Peter chapter 2 tells us that Jesus suffered great injustice. And then it tells us in verse 23, we'll listen to it. It says this, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He's talking about the Father. Jesus didn't need to seek revenge for what was done to him because he was trusting that God would accomplish it for him. We, like Jesus, can be sure that all justice, all evil, will be dealt with by the Lord in the way it should be. And so we can hand over our desire for vengeance, leaving justice ultimately in the hands of the Lord. And that's, that's not to say that we, we, we ignore oppression when we see it, that we leave the oppressed in oppression. We, we should be seeking to set captives free whenever we have opportunity, but, but, but we trust the ultimate justness, justice will be accomplished by God who judges justly. And so then, one of the questions for me that arises through all this is, how do the blessings of God and, and the cursings of God come together? Or, or maybe, maybe the question is better worded like this. How, how can God be loving, truly loving, and also justly pouring out wrath? And somehow we're not all decimated ourselves. And, and here's the answer. Uh, upon the cross of Jesus at Golgotha, the wrath of our just God and the love of our gracious God, same God, come together for the glory of God and the salvation of his people. That, that's where it comes together. Because listen, it doesn't matter what the court of popular opinion declares, the day of the Lord's judgment will come. Scripture could not be more clear about that reality. Justice will be rendered to everyone, and it will be rendered in one of two ways. Either the wrath of God will be poured out upon you, or you will confess your sin and understand that the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus for you at the cross. 
that that's the point of 2 Corinthians 5.21, which I'll read to you here. It says, for, the sa- for, you, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If your faith is in Jesus, Jesus was made sin for you. Now, I put this, this quote in your bulletin. You can flip over if you want to be able to see it with your own eyes. I, I can't find the source of it. No matter, I've Googled my brains out and cannot figure out where it came from, who said it or what. But I love it because the author is, is pondering the words of Jesus while on the cross. And, and he says this. He says, Nothing has ever humbled me so much as hearing the voice of my blessed Lord Jesus, the creator and sustainer of heaven and earth, cry out in prayer to his Father in the Psalms for deliverance from the agonies my sins brought upon his holy soul. I mean, that's the gospel, that Christ becomes sin for us. So I want to finish up with four quick applications, then we'll we'll pray, carry on. Uh, Number one, the psalmist doesn't, doesn't get his emotions under control before going to the Lord and praying. I don't know if maybe I'm the only one who does this, but sometimes I think I, I can only talk to God a, a certain way, and so I, I kind of need to make sure I'm not just, like, going off at the moment. It, it, but that's not what happens here. We, we, we shouldn't do that. You know, let us learn to speak to our Lord honestly, because when we, when we see injustice in the world, when we see oppression, when we see great evil done, it should make our hearts angry. Like, that's the moment when, we, when there is a righteous anger. But what do we do with that anger? And the answer is simply, we, we pray it seriously. We, we, we pray it because God is big and holy and he can handle your anger, whatever you might bring to him. It's exactly where you need to be in your moments of anger. And secondly, we must be praying for justice when we see oppression or injustice in the world. And when I say oppression and injustice, I, I mean those words in the sense that God's word uses them. I don't want to bring any other baggage in with that. But we, we should mourn for the injustice of the, the transatlantic slave, slavery in our country's history and the effects of it that continue to go through our culture. We, we should pray for the end of the sex slave and, and genocide that's going on in the world and terrorism when it happens. And, and really the citizens of North Korea, just to name a few obvious examples of, uh, of injustices we see in the world. And, and in those prayers, we can pray for justice to be rendered to those who are causing the injustice. And this brings us back to that question. And in that sense, yes, we can pray imprecatory psalms. We should. You be careful with that. It's not a thing for personal vengeance, right? Someone cuts you off. You don't pray an imprecatory psalm. We're, we're talking about true, massive oppression, injustice, evil. Third, Psalm 137 is first and foremost a, a lament, right? It's a lament for, the, for their own disobedience that led to, to Israel's destruction and, ex, and exile in Babylon. It's a lament for, for the city of Zion, once so glorious, so beautiful, and, and now laying in, in ruins. It's a lament for their loved ones who have been brutally murdered. But, but it's also a plea for God's help to, to return them to their homeland. That's where they're longing to be. And so this epic psalm is, is for every Christian who longs to be home. 
It's our song of sin and repentance and salvation. It's our our longing for the justice to be done, for the world to be set right, and for us to return home. This is really where all of us are today, right? Longing for our true heavenly home, the new Jerusalem, the eternal kingdom we we learn of in Revelation 21 and 22. We're actually a lot like the children that would have been born in exile in Babylon. Think about that. 71 years they're there. Someone that was born in year one is, what, 70 years by the time they return home. And so their whole life they've been hearing about Jerusalem and have never even seen it. Never set foot in it. They wouldn't have even seen a photo of it. No idea except for the descriptions they had of it. We're like that. We're longing for an eternal home that we have never seen. We've only heard of. Number four, the last one. Let let us long for our enemies to become our friends through redemption in Christ. Here's why. Because if we understand the gospel in the fullness that Israel did not understand it, then, then we know that we too were enemies of God before he made us his children through union with Christ, right? Faith in Christ. Apart from the grace of God, every one of us should be and would be Worthy recipients of the wrath of God. We, we, we know from Scripture, right, that we are, we're born children of wrath is the way it puts, us, puts it. And, and apart from some other redeemed sinner proclaiming hope of the gospel, we would only be awaiting wrath. That, that's the reality of our situation. In, in other words, we can't really look at, at men and women who reject or oppose the gospel as completely different from ourselves because they need the grace of the Lord if they are to be anything but objects of wrath just like us. And I say that because I want you to know that you you can't be proud of your faith. You can't be. You you can't be arrogant in heart. And so let us long for the salvation of others. Long for the, the curse that they deserve to be upon Christ for them just as it is for us. Always remembering that Jesus took upon himself the curse of the covenant and he gave every man, woman, and child who believes on him the blessings of the covenant. Blessings beyond what we could ever imagine. That's the beauty of the gospel. The Christ becomes sin for us. He takes the curse so that we receive the blessings. Let's, let's pray. Lord God, we we thank you for hard texts like this. It's not always fun to spend time in them, but it's good for our soul, and so we thank you for, for the mysteries and the truth of your word. We thank you for your commitment to justice and, and not, not giving us what we deserve, but rather satisfying the necessity of justice with the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Lord, may we focus our hope there even as we live in a sin-stained world filled with injustice. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.